Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffey. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? We are working from home today. <laughs> we, yes, yes, we are back into kind of COVID exclusion from the studio. So we are remote broadcasting. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So excuse any issues. I don't think we'll have any, but definitely excuse any issues. Um, but I want to jump right in. So today we are talking with author, the Honorable Dr. James L. Felder. He's a native South Carolinian. Um, he has written, I think I counted five books, four yes. books. Oh, five books. I was right. Five books. Um, one of which, the main one that we, we um, when we first found him, what we talked about, which is the John, he buried John, I buried John F. Kennedy. That is the name of his book. Um, he's also one of three African-American men who was put into the South Carolina legislature, was a South Carolina legislator in 1970. So I need y'all to wrap your head around this one. This was over a hundred years after reconstruction. He's perfect for today because, you know, on November 3rd, we're going to be voting. We're going to be making our choice again, as far as presidents are concerned. And we're going to be, you know, not just presidents, everything, local, federal, state, everything. And so I thought, we thought that it would be great that if we talk to Dr. Felder today so that he can give us a insight on what happened then compared to what's happening now. And then also pushing in, of course, our genealogy, knowing that a lot of our families um, were actually wrapped into politics and it's not shared in history. So welcome, Dr. Felder. Yes, welcome Thank to the you. show. And again, just to kind of put a historical cap on it, before we went live, Donnie and I were having a conversation, you know, we were catching up on the news of the day. And I was saying that images that I saw in North Carolina, and I can't remember what city it happened in, but this was recent. This was like yesterday or the day before. Images of people marching to the polls to vote being tear gassed by the police who felt that they were obstru obstructing traffic and, and whatnot. So of course there's there's two sides to this story. The media is in it. So, you know, we'll probably get the definitive thing. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is because it really did make me, it just immediately took my mind back to the civil rights marches of the 1950s, where you see attack dogs and you see people being being sprayed with um fire hoses, you know, with with water. And literally, if you were to put those two images side by side, you would think that nothing had changed between the early civil rights movement and literally what was happening at the moment. So for that and many other reasons, um, Dr. Felder, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. So where do we start? You go first. You go um, first. Let's start with your book. How? I mean, let's start with all of the books, but mainly I buried John F. Kennedy. You buried, you were the head casket team leader for probably the most loved president of the 20th century. How, how did that make you feel? What, what did that do for you? You know, 
being in the time period that you were in, the dealing with the things that was going on, the kind of man that he was, how did that make you feel? Well, at the time of Kennedy's death, I was a young soldier stationed at Fort Myer, Virginia at Arlington National Cemetery. And my duties were burying the dead in Arlington Cemetery. When Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963, I was what you would call a short timer. I only had 47 days left to serve in the army. And so, of course, when you have that short period of time, if you're not going to make the, the military your career, you are job hunting. So that Friday afternoon, when Kennedy was assassinated, I was coming out of the Department of Agriculture from an interview when I saw these three ladies, ladies gathered around a taxi cab and crying. I went over nosey, asked what was going on. And they said, the old taxi driver, very cold, very stoic. They just shot Kennedy. So what do you mean they shot Kennedy? I said, well, he, I said, he's in Dallas today. Yeah, that's where they got him. Well, I lived off post, had a six-month-old child. And so I wandered around the cities waiting for updates. And then finally, Walter Conkright came on and said, well, the president is dead. I rushed home to my apartment in southeast Washington. Walked in the door, the telephone was ringing. It was my first sergeant. He said, uh, Sergeant Felder, you heard what happened to President Kennedy. I said, yes. He said, well, your leave has been canceled. You've got to go to Dallas to pick up the president's body. So come on out here to Fort Myer. Get your team together. We're going to helicopter you over to Andrews Air Force Base to go to Texas. Well, by the time we could get together and get transportation to Andrews and all of that, it was getting dark. And at that point, Lyndon Johnson wanted to get out of Texas. And so he took the oath of office, you know, on Air Force One. So we went out to Andrews and we sat on tarmac waiting for Air Force One to come in. And when it came in, we took the president's body off, put it in a gray Navy ambulance and took it up to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Now, how did I get involved? The military operates on seniority. So whoever's a senior person in any unit, detail or what have you is automatically in charge. If you have four generals together and one is a three-star and the other's and one is a four-star, and the other is a three-star, the four-star guy is in charge. He's a senior person there. I just happened to be senior NCO for funerals at Arlington Cemetery when Kennedy was assassinated. So there was never any discussion of who was going to head the casket team. Mm. For years, I would get the question, how did you, little black boy from Sumter, South Carolina, get selected to head Kennedy's casket team? Now, remember, this is 1963. This is before the Voting Rights Act. This is before the Civil Rights Act and all of that. Well, it's because the military has always been a step ahead of the rest of society. And so it was natural. I fell into that spot. So after 20-some years, keep getting that question, I decided to write the book, I Buried John F. Kennedy, to tell about all the details what had happened. Now, how did it begin for me? It began here in Columbia, South Carolina, Fort Jackson. I was drafted. I'd finished college. Long as I was in college, I got the deferments. The minute I graduated, the draft board started hunting me. Now, I'm in Atlanta, right? Uh, finished clock, college, working at the post office, waiting to go to law school in the fall. And I got drafted. I went to my congressman, including Strom Thurmond from Southgate, from Ed Shield, mm -hmm. to see if I could. Hey, I said, listen, I'd gone to the Air Force, took all the tests, and they were going to put me in pilot training. Strom Thurmond and the other congressmen, no, once you get that draft notice, you've got to go to the Army. So I, I went to the Army, kicking and screaming. Spent six months here in Columbia at Fort Jackson, AIT, Advanced Infantry Training, Basic Training, Leadership School. And then one day, the old 
uh, Sergeant Major fell out the whole battalion. I'm, I'm going to cut this short. But he was trying to find some men to go up to Washington to try out for the honor guards. It's all voluntary. Ten of us made the cut out of a thousand. They sent us up to D.C., went over to Arlington Cemetery. They kept two of us out of the ten. That's how I ended up at Fort Myer and carrying President Kennedy's funeral. Yeah. I was with the time. I was with the body from the time we picked it up at Air Force at uh, Andrews Air Force Base until he was buried four days later. I witnessed the autopsy. I witnessed the embalming. Witnessed the selection of a second casket because the first casket, the handles on it got broken, so we had to change casket. Wow. So we went through all that. Yes. So finally, after all of the pumping circumstances, and the, uh, had to take the body up the steps of the Capitol. In order to do that, we had to train. We went out to Arlington Cemetery. The steps behind the tomb of the unknown soldier, and you're familiar with Arlington, the steps behind the tomb of the unknown soldier are exactly the same as the steps at the, at the U.S. Capitol. So we practice on our what we call our dummy casket, the one we train on. We put sandbags in the casket. We put two guys on top of it to compensate for the weight because Kennedy's casket with the body weighed 1,800 pounds to practice so we wouldn't have any missteps taking it up and down the Capitol. Well, anyway, finally, there's a day of funeral, and we finally buried Kennedy on that Monday. My leave was reinstated. I was allowed to come home for Thanksgiving to Sumter, South Carolina for the Thanksgiving holidays. Got back to Washington, got a phone call. It was from the wife of my company commander. She said, Jim, Mike died last night. Mike was a 28-year-old captain. He was head of my company on, on, on the post. Died of a heart attack at his dinner table with his wife and three-year-old. Wow. She said, I want you to do Mike's funeral also. I said, well, I don't have any uniforms. I turned in everything. Then I'm a short time. I'm, I'm trying to get out of there. <laughs> so I borrowed a uniform and equipment, did Mike's funeral, and then I went back to the post. And I told my commander officer, I said, in 10 days, I have buried the commander-in-chief, the president, and I have buried my company commander, Mike Groves. I am not going back in Arlington Cemetery for any more funerals. He looked at me straight in the eyes. Well, so I'm fell, you know, you're still in the army. You still got to come out here every day. And I did report it back every day in civilian clothes until I was released from the army. After that, I didn't go back to Fort Myers. Uh, Arlington Cemetery for almost 20 years. And that was when Joe Lewis died. Remember the old yeah. boxer? The brown bomber, they called him. Joe Lewis died. He was in, living in Las Vegas. He was a greeter at Caesar's uh, Casino. When he died, his body lied in state there for three days. And then they brought him back to D.C. for burial at Arlington Cemetery. The one good thing that Ronald Reagan did, in my mind, was to grant an exception so Joe Lewis could be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Because at that time, the rules had changed. Uh, every, even though Joe had been in the military, everybody couldn't be buried in Arlington anymore. In order today, if you were going to be buried in Arlington Cemetery today, you must have been killed in action or spent 20 years in the military or get a presidential exception. Thurgood Marshall. Is buried in Arlington. Had to get an exception for him because he was not military. So anyway, Jesse Jackson did this, this service, and he said, "Jim, I want you to go with me." Jesse and I from South. Jesse from South Carolina, also a longtime friend, fraternity brothers. I'd spent time with him in Chicago and all that had pushed. So we went to Arlington Cemetery to do 
uh, Joe Lewis's funeral. And that was the first time I'd been back in 20 years. So that's my story on Arlington Cemetery and President Kennedy. Now, 1963, it was the pivotal year of civil rights in this country. And it all began in February 1963. The Kennedys had a big party at the White House and invited over a thousand persons of color, uh, athletes, entertainers, everybody from Jim Brown to Bill Russell, uh, uh, Lena Horne, you name it, and they were invited. Two people declined the invitation, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Uh, Martin, uh, Malcolm, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. King said, I am too busy to come to a party. I'm planning my assault on Birmingham. <laughs> the other person was uh, A. Philip Randolph. I'm sorry, it was A. Philip Randolph, head of sleeping carports. And he said, in that big boon voice, he said, Mr. President, I can't come to your party. I'm planning a march on Washington. Well, move on through 63. What happened? Dr. King did assault Birmingham. That's where you saw the dogs and the, wire and, the, and the fire hoses and all of that. Later on, the Kennedys finally got the message that they needed to do more on civil rights. July 1963, President Kennedy went on national television and proposed some legislation, some civil rights legislation to Congress. The next day, or that later that same night, Medgar Evers was assassinated in Mississippi. I did Medgar Evers' funeral. This is 63 then. So the summer went on, 19, uh, August 1963. There was the big march on Washington, spearheaded by A. Philip Randolph and Baird Rustin and uh, uh, Rory Wilkins of the NAACP and Rand Young of, Urban, of the Urban League. That was August. September 1963, there was a bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham where the four little girls were killed. A good point in 1963 was later that year, the University of South Carolina here in, in Columbia finally desegregated. Clemson had desegregated earlier that year. And then, of course, in November, Kennedy was assassinated. So 1963 was a pivotal year. A lot happened that most people forget or don't tie together. But 63 was the year that changed much. Lyndon Johnson picked up the mantle and he vowed that he would do what Kennedy couldn't do, is push through some civil rights legislation. And he did the next year in 64. The next year in 65, he pushed through the Voting Rights Act. That's when I got involved. I was coming out of Howard University Law School. Vernon Jordan came up dragged me back to South Carolina to do voter registration in 67. When I arrived here, we only had 50,000 black voters in South Carolina of the whole state. Black elected officials, we only had eight. Four of them were in a little town called Eastover, not far here from Columbia, and the other four were down in Beaufort, South Carolina. We put on a massive voter registration drive, and in an 18-month period, we registered over 200,000 blacks. Strom Thurmond from Ed Shield. Sorry about that. <laughs> can I off. just can I just jump in really really quickly with um with the question? Yes. Why why was the level of voter registration so low? Good question. In those days, the voter registration office was only open two days a week. 
Wow. Okay. Two days a month. I'm sorry. Two days a month. Oh, my God. Two days God. a month. Two days a month. And oh. all the registrars were white. And you went in and you were at their mercy. And they will ask you dumb questions like how many bubbles in a bath of soap? How many jelly beans in a jar? And if they didn't like your answer, it's no, you have to go and come back. Or they would ask you to interpret a section of the Constitution, which they couldn't do themselves. But if you didn't do it to their selection, you would deny the opportunity to register to vote. So that's why there were only 50,000 at that point. And like I said, only eight black elected officials. But after that massive drive, it opened the door in South Carolina to elect more black elected officials. Strom Thurmond was, he was, he was a cagey old boy. No, no doubt about it. He was very cagey. <laughs> and uh, uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about him in a minute. But we got 100,000 blacks registered to vote. And Strom used to say he couldn't say Negro. He would say the Negroes, the Negroes. We got 100,000 blacks registered. Strom all of a sudden learned how to say Negro. We got 150,000 registered. Strom Thurmond was sending out letters, my dear black constituents, can I be of service to you? <laughs> we got 200,000 elected, and Strom Thurmond was the first of all of the Southern congresspersons and senators to hire a black staffer. He hired a guy named Tom Moss. Tom stayed with Strom for 30 years. And if you wanted constituent service, you didn't call Holland's office, who was the other Democrat senator from South Africa. You called Strom Thurmond's office, and he would make it happen through a fellow named Tom Moss. So that's what the vote did. And when we realized how valuable our vote was, all of a sudden, we really began to register people to vote. We began to get people in the registrar's office, people of color. Uh, and now today in South Carolina, we have 1,039,000 black registered voters one-third we represent one-third that is so awesome and it, it actually goes right into a question now so with all of that that you've just you know revealed to us first of all i i don't know about y'all but i'm just like dumbfounded with the information that he just 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 rolled off of his tongue like it happened yesterday so um but the thing is is that you just made one particular thing that said the statement that just stood out to me, and that was how strong that's when we realized how strong our vote was. Do you think that that is um, because this kind of history that spilled out? Do you think that this history is what's missing and why so many people, black people, don't vote today? Because you guys went through a lot to get the vote. And now, you know, we have so many people of color. I'm not even talking about just black people. I'm talking about Hispanic, Latino, um, Hispanic, Latino together, Asian, whatever. It's people of color that don't vote the way, don't vote the way that they should vote. And just really just forget about that whole thing. Do you think that not knowing this history has a lot to do with that? Because it's forgotten. Yeah. Yes, it does. And that's why I, I decided to write the book Civil Rights in South Carolina so we could have a picture of what we've come through, where we are and where we're going. We don't do enough of preserving our history. Uh, and that was the reason for that book. And the other books you know, preserved the lives of individuals. 
but we did not know that. So the more, my book is now, we've used it, University of South Carolina and most of the colleges in South Carolina, they use it as part of uh, the texts and teaching civil rights courses because it wasn't there before. We just didn't know our history as such. Uh, but I came along at a time when so much was developing uh, that I decided long ago that I was some point I was going to pull all of this together in writing form. And that's what I've attempted to do. And I still have some more to do. But once we learned the value of it, as a result of that, today there's 928 Black elected officials in South Carolina. Everybody from the U.S. Senate, Tim Scott, Jim Clyburn in, in the Congress, uh, to Steve Benjamin, mayor of Columbia, and we have mayors in most of the major cities here in South Carolina, all because we finally realized the power we had in the vote. As a result of that, what's going on today? Jamie Harrison. Yes. Giving Lindsey Graham all he can handle. Yes, he is. And we really expect to pull that off. Um, if we can turn out 80% of the African-American vote, and I think we can. We're on the way there. We did it with Obama. We did it 76%. But we're finding at this race, Jamie Harrison has woke up more people than Obama did. So we expect to really, you can expect to see some real change in South Carolina on Tuesday. But again, we had to really teach and preach and, and talk about what we are doing, how much power is in the vote. And that's how we are where we are today. Now, when I ran in 1970, it was the first since Reconstruction that we were able to elect, elect three Blacks to the South Carolina House of Representatives. And in those days, we didn't have single member districts. We had to run at large. That's why we could never get a black elected. He had to run at large in the county. And in most counties, blacks, whites outnumbered blacks. But in 1970, I must say some young white Turks, we call them, uh, stuck their heads out and supported us and campaigned with us. So I got elected in Columbia. I.S. Levy Jensen got elected in Columbia. And Herbert Fielding got elected in Charleston. Jim Clyburn also was a part of that team. He went to bed knowing he had won down in Charleston. Mm. Woke up the next day when the absentee ballots were finally counted. Remember, absentee ballots were finally counted. He lost, but that didn't stop him. He kept running for various offices, and of course, now you know who he is today. But all it all started in 1970. Wow. Well, I've got a question for you. So when we look, basically when we learn about the civil rights movement of the, the 60s, um, which happened literally right before I was born, you know, we see like the, the big headlines and the big marches and the standoffs with the police and the speeches. I've always been curious about what were the more kind of passive forms of resistance that African-American and people of color actually adopted? So maybe not out there marching and, and banging the drum and, and giving speeches or, you know, going on the stump. What, you know, do they do things like boycott, you know, boycotting, buying from certain stores or you know, wh what were the more passive forms that they took? You put your finger on it. Uh, selective campaigns, we called them. Uh, we didn't call them boycotts because uh, that was a little, I was against the law to boycott back in those days. Uh, mm -hmm. Remember, the NAACP got put out of uh, Alabama uh, because of, of boycotting and took many years for them to get organized again. So there were selective campaigns. 
where we would agree to target one segment of the community. Grocery stores maybe on this time, next time we would boycott the dairies, uh, the ice cream places. That's what was happening. And when business people start losing money, uh, they then change their attitude and behavior about what is happening in a community. Orangeburg, South Carolina was a good example. The bowling alley there where Ultimately, there was a massacre in Orangeburg where three students were killed and 27 others were hurt um, because of the boycotting of the bowling alley or, or attempting to integrate the bowling alley. But specifically, little resources were available. However, people would raise money, had to raise money to get people out of jail. They would sell cakes and pies and do whatever they could with whatever limit their resources they had in order to keep us out of jail or to get us out of jail for bail money because uh, the white bail bond wouldn't even think about bailing us out. So those are some of the subtle things in the background that were happening during that time. Yes. Okay. The boycott was once. Thank you. My follow-up question and Athiba, if you wouldn't mind putting up that on that picture. So while Athiba's looking for that, um, for those of you joining the show, Athiba is our wonderful producer. We love him to bits. Um, it's my perception that every time that people of color and specifically African-Americans have demand, you know, fought for civil rights, social justice, police reforms, we're deemed radical. And the picture that I hope is going to be coming on the screen is actually a, an image taken during the Reconstruction period. Up here yes. we go. I so see. A lot of I, I'm looking at it. Yeah, a lot of very handsome, stately gentlemen. I believe these were all these were all senators coming from the South. Now these were Republicans. These, yes. This was back in the days when the Republican was a very different party than what it is today. So don't yes. think we're talking about the same party to the audience. Why is it that when Black people have fought for um, justice and equality, we're automatically deemed radical? And that's that's actually what's this was part of a newspaper, larger newspaper article in the 1800s that introduced these men as the radical Republicans. Radical Repo Reconstruction Republicans. That picture, on that picture, you will see most of them are from South Carolina. We, South Carolina was the first to elect a black person to the legislature back during Reconstruction. And we sent more to D.C. than the rest of the South combined. But they called them radical because they were seeking rights under the Constitution. That's what it was all about. And they were Republicans because of Lincoln. And it stayed that way. My dad was a Republican because he couldn't participate in the Democratic Party. Uh, right up until the early 50s, uh, the best we could do was vote for a Republican because you couldn't participate in the white Democratic Party. In order to gain that participation, we had to sue. And in a lawsuit in South Carolina called Elmo versus Rice, against the Democratic Party, broke down that barrier. And for the first time, Blacks were able to uh, participate in Democratic Party politics. So I say to people today when they say, well, why do you stick with the Democratic Party? Well, we had to fight to get into it. We had to fight to be a part of it. So you don't walk away from something you have fought so far, much for. Hmm. And again, getting back to Strom Thurmond, getting back to Strom, who was a Democrat. He got upset over the 64 Civil Rights Bill and left the Republican Party 
I mean, the Democratic Party and switched to the Republican Party. He was the he was the vehicle that changed yep. all of that because they did not like what Johnson had done in the civil rights law of '64 and the '65 voting rights of '65. That's when the South changed. It was all over the rights. And today yeah. you still have what they call a lot of red states now, but you know, things beginning to change now as more young people uh, begin to participate in the process and even more young whites now are beginning to participate in a fair way. But that's what happened. That's the, how we left the Republican Party because we couldn't get elected. And I guess the so thing here that we I are want... today. Here we are here we are today. And I guess the missing puzzle piece for me has always been when we as a people fight for civil rights, police reform, social justice reform, we never have fought for just ourselves. We may, be, we may put black faces to it and brown faces to it, but poor, specifically poor whites stood to gain just as much as we did. We were, it was never all about us. What got lost in translation that was the hatred for black people so de so ingrained that they couldn't they couldn't see themselves in that situation or see how they could benefit from this legislation. And what happened, the powers that be used that. Uh, and they ingrained in poor whites that they were better than we were and that um, blacks deserved what they got. And they bought that. And as a result, when we fought for change, you're right. All people benefit from it. Um, however, on the other hand, you, you don't see uh, lower income white folk out there fighting for change that would bring us in. Mm. But the whole thing in a nutshell is that Dr. King was our model. He said, do it nonviolently. Many of us did. There were some changes. There was some fighting, internal fighting between Stokely and Dr. King and all of that. But that's a part of involvement. You're going to have people on both ends of the spectrum. But we stuck, stuck with nonviolence and we stuck together. That was the other piece. We stuck that you had a few that, you know, went away and did other things like you have today. You still have a few out there who don't see it the way the majority of us I'm talking about. But we don't let that stop us. So. Here we are today in South Carolina, uh, uh, running a young man for the U.S. Senate who has an excellent chance of winning. We have other offices. We have 13 of the 39 black sheriffs in the state. And it goes on and on and on and on in terms of where we have come from. But it was not easy. It was not easy at all. We had people who suffered uh, dismissals from jobs, uh, fired from schools, um, and we had to fight every time that happened. Septima Clark out of Charleston got fired because she would not renounce her NACP membership. We, we took care of that in the later years when I got to the legislature, we filed a bill to get her paid for all the years she had lost. But again, she was an elderly lady at that point, couldn't enjoy those resources that now come forth. So it was not easy. Uh, and it's not easy today. Uh, here we are today using other kind of tactics to depress the vote, you know, changing the rules, uh, fighting against opening precincts up, uh, fighting against increasing number of people to work at the polls. So the struggle continues, but um, I'm pleased that there's a generation coming behind me that's uh, taking on the mantle here. At 81, I need to just be reading my newspaper and drinking coffee in the morning. 
but I can't do it just yet. <laughs> Jim Cliven can't do it just yet. He turned 80 the other day. Uh, so we still see some fight fights out there. And uh, as um, the preacher who was at Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, who Dr. King replaced, he would say, if you see a good fight, get in it. So here we are. We see some good fights out there. And so we're still getting in. So, so how does it feel? Go ahead, Brian. Yes. Oh, this is, hopefully this is a really quick one. <clears throat> how did, I'm just trying to think how to phrase it. How do people of your generation feel when you're hearing rhetoric today that you could have lived it from the 1950s and the 1960s? In particular, I'm thinking about Jamie Harrison's first debate with Lindsey Graham. When Lindsay mm-hmm. said there is a place for young black Afri- you know, African-Americans in South Carolina, so long as they're conservative. He said that. Those he said were, he, was, he, could, he could have been a Democrat from the 1880s or the 1890s saying exactly the same thing. You are absolutely right. And uh, we have let him know that uh, we did not appreciate it. But you're right. He's a throwback to the days of George Wallace. And all the others, he just he's just dressed up in a better suit and tie, but uh, he is still harboring the past. He wants to go back to the past, and that's why he needs to be retired, and we're doing everything we can to do it. And I'm so pleased as I ride through white neighborhoods here in South Carolina, and I see Jamie Harrison signs in their yard. I mean, I almost want to cry sometimes because I realize how far we have come. That would have never happened back then. But that's where we are today. But you still have the Lindsey Grahams out there. And of course, 45, this president, he opens the door uh, with his uh, dog whistle for all these other groups, skinheads and clansmen and all of that to come out of the woodwork. Divisive. I've never seen a president that divisive in my life, but that's what he is. But I think people finally called on to him. And so that's why... We're seeing long lines at early voting all over South Carolina. Even yesterday, the lines were around the building and down the block. So a change is coming. It's been a long time, but a change is coming. So I have some questions from our um, our audience. But yes, ma'am. first, I wanted to just really kind of reiterate something that you said. I wanted to not reiterate, but double down on something that you said about the Democrats, the Republicans. One of my big issues is how people continue to come out their mouth and say, how can you be, talk about, talk to Black people saying, how can you be a Democrat? That was something that you were talking about. I need for people to understand that during that time period, they were both racist. Let's be clear. (laughs) They were both a racist group of people. There was not one that was different from the other. Um, Lincoln did what he did for reasons, mm-hmm. not because he was trying to do something different. This has been found. This is read. This is in books. You can find it. Um, and I, I, I definitely enjoy the fact that you came in with the um, the fact explaining where the change happened. Mm-hmm. And it, that it was somebody like Strom Thurmond, because you and I had when you and I first had our first conversation one of the things that you pointed that I said and you pointed out to me that I was correct is that South Carolina was really the hub for the restart of America. And so looking at Strom Thurmond being the reason 
why or you know the the catalyst of why everything switched from black people being democrats i mean from black people being republicans to black people being democrats this, this makes all the sense in the world and i'm just gonna say it again thank you for being on this show and for sharing your you, you know for sharing this kind type of knowledge um it also puts an emphasis on because one of our persons, one of our people who asked the question that I'm getting ready to ask, he also said, I've heard many say your ancestors died so that you could vote. Not so in my family history. They seem generally uninterested in politics. But you've pointed out just now that politics didn't have to have anything to do with you being your ancestors died for voting. You you just pointed that out just because they went to vote and i i just i'm so happy so <laughs> i just wanted to say that part but his okay. question was did you have to take the harriet tubman approach to fire up the interest within the african-american community to vote oftentimes we did communities were different you gotta remember south carolina is like uh divided into three areas. You have the low country, we call it, Charleston, Beaufort, all that area. You have the Midlands, which is the Columbia, Orangeburg, Sumter area. And then you have the upstate, Greenville, Spartanburg, three distinct regions. And politics is different in almost each region. It looks like they're beginning to come together now. But if you lived in the low country where most blacks were concentrated during that time, it was much tougher if you lived up in the Greenville area. And what you did have going on up, there's a lot of interracial marriages and all of that. Um, Columbia was more subtle with it because the capital is here and mostly it's a government town, but you have to deal with each region in a different way. Uh, most of the marches here in South Carolina occurred in Columbia and Sumter and Charleston. Greenville didn't have much. Now, Jesse Jackson did launch in high school uh, march against the library because they wouldn't let him use it. But we are less populated in the upcountry, as we call it. So the focus starts in Columbia and moves south. And each region uh, differs a little bit. Uh, the culture is a little bit different. You got more farming. Well, you used to have more farming. Now you've got Boeing and uh, Boeing making airplanes in Charleston and all that. Now, South Carolina is changing for the better. No question about that. But you still have lingering some of the old culture from the past. And Lindsey Graham is stuck into that. Yeah. Um, Lindsey's daddies, they were Democrats. You know, he, he only became... He became a Republican in later years during the strong term period. But South Carolina was a solid democratic state. Yeah. And that's why we couldn't get much done because we were left out. So we had to fight to get into the party. And then the minute we got in, Strom jumped ship and led many more with him because he didn't want us to be a part of the Democratic Party. So hence the Red South and where we are now. And then we have another question from Jay Spears. Thank you, A.E., um, for asking that question. And then we have another question from Jay Spears. With all you've gone through and have witnessed firsthand, is your cup regarding our conditions in this country currently half empty or half full and why? 
it's half full because it was completely empty not too long ago when I came on the scene almost when we only had, you know, 50,000 black registered voters and eight black elected officials. So uh, it, it is half full and moving up. I have two grandsons, one's at Clemson and the other one's at the College of Charleston. They don't really know segregation. They, they grew up in high schools where kids, black and white kids, have sleepover parties at their homes. Uh, they play soccer together and all. So they haven't experienced it. So I, I have to keep loading them up with the past so we don't repeat it again. Um, but the point, I'm, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we have come a long ways and the glass is half full, might be three quarters full now. If we let Jamie Harrison, we can say, almost say it is full now. But that's where we are. Yes, uh, the glass is more, it's not half empty. It's it's half full plus. Well, following suit on that, you're, okay, so it, it's half full plus in South Carolina. What about, what about the rest of the state? The rest of the state, I talk to my friends over in Georgia and I get calls all the time because they just don't believe that Jamie Harrison is giving Lindsey Graham the fit that he's giving him. And they want to know what do we do over here to make that happen. You know, I spent a good five years in Atlanta, Clark Atlanta University. I was student body president. Uh, Julian Bond and I and Lonnie King, we led the city-ins in Atlanta. Uh, so I have a lot of friends back there and we always watching what each other's doing in e each other's state. And so I get that question from them is, what are y'all doing over there that we're not doing here uh, to for you to advance as far as you've gone? South Carolina is only half the size of Georgia, but things are beginning to happen in Georgia. I exchanged with them, uh, our strategies, and it looks like it's beginning to work. It looks like Georgia may elect a black senator over there in terms of Womack mm. uh, or the other. So that's how it's going. We, we exchange notes, but... Other parts of the state, now, for example, Mississippi, Epps is running a good race for, for Senate down there. Mike Epps very well may pull that Senate seat off in Mississippi. Talked to him the other day, and he feels good about it. Yeah. So other, other places, things are happening. You just don't get all the news all the time from the, the rest of the country as to what is going on. There was a time when our source of news was Ebony and Jet magazine. Yep. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't believe it unless we saw it in Jet Magazine. We didn't believe it. You know. Yeah. But, you know, things change. They aren't there anymore, you know, uh, as they used to be. The, you know, digital, I understand, they're, they're still going on. So we don't have a central source that keeps up with all of us around the country so that we know what each other's doing like we used to have it. Yeah. And that's amazing that you said that because my uncle, um, every time, so I have, I, I had two uncles who were very politically active. Um, mm -hmm. My uncle Joseph Yodel was one. He was um, actually appointed by Lyndon B. Johnson to the DC's first, to the first, DC's first DC council. So, I thought I recognized that name. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That's yeah. my uncle. And okay. okay. His, his brother, my other uncle was John Carlton Yeldale. And mm -hmm. he was very instrumental in the precursor to the civil rights. So he was a part, he went to Howard University as well. He was um, mm -hmm. Phi Beta Sigma. Um, they actually had, and he had everything to do with the National Negro Congress that started at Howard University. Mm -hmm. So he was, he, you know, he was full, full force, full, 
um head straight ahead as mm -hmm. far as all of that is concerned when it comes to politics. Um, so for you to you know really say that things are changing in a certain direction and so on and so forth. I mean, I guess I can see it, but in the same instance, I see things going backwards. So that makes me ask, as far as your strategy is concerned, how, or with your books and everything and getting them into University of South Carolina, how can we get this kind of history into other schools, into all schools? Because I think it would just make a huge impact in all kinds of ways. It would. And what, what you're doing now, find some more Jim Fellows and interview them and uh, use it, pass it on to the institutions of higher learning, share with them. I mean, almost every major college now have some Black Studies program, something going on. But what you're doing is preserving some of us who've been there, and that can certainly be the, the, the way to the future for getting information out on our lives. If we don't tell our story, mm. some person gonna come along, some Caucasian doing a dissertation or something and they'll write what they thought happened and then that becomes gospel. Yes, it once does. you put it in the book, <laughs> everybody believes it. <laughs> okay. Yes, so that's why I'm beginning to write and I'm encouraging others to do likewise. And I'm beginning to see some of that happen. We've got a writers, Black Writers Alliance here in Columbia and Sumter and Greenville and Spartanburg. And they meet and they write. And so we're beginning to see us begin to preserve our story. And that well, I let them know we want them. Tell Mr. Clyburn, I've sent him a message. <laughs> okay. All right, good. We good. want to talk good. to him. We would love to share his story. I will tell him to return your call. You know, he and I grew up together. Really? We grew up to, we grew up together in Sumter, South Carolina. Yes. Wow. yes. We grew up to, even though he spent his early days in Charleston, his first first job out of college was teaching history in Charleston. Jim Clive and I grew up in Sumter together. We went to the same high school. His mother was a beautician, my mother was a beautician. He and I married librarians. Uh, we lived in the same neighborhood for 20 years. We both Omegas. We both ran for office at the same time. Uh, we still communicate regularly. Uh, so our lives really parallel to each other. So right. I know him like a book. Um, I, I will tell him to expect a call or return your call or message. I'll do well, that. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but again, one of the reasons why Donnie and I are so passionate about this subject is specifically with our South Carolina family, because we've been doing genealogy for so long and we've dug out family stories and histories and we've, you know, we've studied South Carolina history. Mm -hmm. I just want to get to a place where people can vote and it's just not an incident. Because, you know, we had family members, both immediate and, and just extended family who were butchered and, and basically voter suppression massacres like the Greenwood riots, the yeah. Parksville riot, the Phoenix mm -hmm. riots, down, all the riots that happened down in Barnwell. Mm -hmm. can, you know, can we as a country actually just get past all of this? I can't even say all of that because it's still happening. It happened in Texas. I mean, look, they tried to force a bus off the road. Can we yes, as a country just, yeah. actually mm -hmm. get past that and just vote? We have to vote, but we can't just let these incidents go. Because if you do, you'll repeat them again. 
you know, what I say, if you don't know your history, you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going. Uh, but if you do know your history, you know what to avoid, and you know what to plan for the future. And that's kind of where we are now, as I see it. Um, but what I'm so proud of is young people like yourself. Yeah. You, you, you're taking this thing serious. You're not just uh, out there to make a buck and have the big house on the hill and the two, two uh, Mercedes. Uh, you, you seem really interested in our history and the genealogy part. So that's why when I talk to Danya, I said, okay, I'll do it. But then I forgot to put it on my calendar. <laughs> so I'm glad you called and remind me because I was headed off to the NAACP office. We're doing our last planning for tomorrow's activities before the election day. But you are doing the right thing, what needs to be done to preserve our history and be able to pass it on here. So I congratulate you. And I, that makes me feel that, uh, you know, I can, I can move off on the side now. Play a little golf. And <laughs> enjoy your enjoy your golf. I guess for, for for me the impetus is I've actually lived outside of America for longer than I've lived in it. Okay. So for for thirty years, mostly in England, but you know lived and worked in Europe and in Asia. So I grew up hearing racism. Left. There's racism everywhere. I mean, let me just be honest about that. There, there's it is. nowhere you it can is. go. But there's and the places I lived, it was nowhere near on the scale that it is here. So mm -hmm. having been away for 30 years and coming back, I'm not prepared to go back in the box. That's what I call it. I lived mm -hmm. in a box for 21 years. I was we call it being kind of part of the get along game. Yeah. You know, if I dress this way and if I speak this way and if you know I make myself small, then I won't be seen as as threatening. Then I realized I didn't have to be that way. In Europe, and I actually found my voice, and I found who I was, and I'm not prepared to go back in the box ever mm -hmm. again. Um, so that's again, that's one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about it because I want all people of color to know what it's like to actually live your your life to mm -hmm. your fullest extent without the color of your skin being weaponized against you or being used as an anchor to drown you. You know, I want everyone to be able to feel that. Well, I'm just a Yeldale, and these people in my family is crazy, so we we not staying in nobody's box. <laughs> we, we never, <laughs> we just never been in anybody's box. You, if you've known my uncle Joe, then you you knew. Yes, you know, yes. He, he was not that one, and and as I we I we called him, that was Uncle Brother, and um, mm -hmm. he died in two, 2013, but um. I got to know him when I worked on Capitol Hill for John Conyers. While I was in law school at Howard, I spent two years uh, working for Conyers, part-time in the evenings after classes, what have you. So that's how I got to know him and, and all of the Walter Washington and all that DC yeah. crowd back in those days. Yeah. Um, and it, it was an interesting time. It was really, and they were inspirations to me. And so when Vernon Jordan came to DC to it wasn't easy. I mean, it was not easy for me to, to to leave. I felt I'd learned enough. I needed to bring it back home. And that's and that's what he kept impressing on me. Jimmy Feller, you need to bring your butt back home to South Carolina. You all, have you all met Vernon Jordan? You know who he is, Vernon Jordan? Mm -hmm. Yes, I know. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. If he's willing to so, be on the show, we want them all. Let me just tell now. So whatever. All right, well, <laughs> let, let me see what I can do on that, because Vernon's health is failing now, but he, he would love to, to do it. 
But let, let me let me reach out to him and to Cliven also, because these guys are, are getting away. John Lewis is gone. We, we, we're falling. Yeah. We're leaving here. So those yeah. of us who are still around and still have some stories or knowledge that they can, can share, you need to be able to get that. All right, I'll, I'll make it a promise. Vernon and, and Jim Cliven, I'll work on those stories. Awesome. Thank you so much. We have one more question, and if you could answer it real quick, that would be awesome. Um, okay. Why is Malcolm X considered radical by the white establishment regarding his civil rights activism? Now, before you answer, someone tried to answer for her. And um, basically they said because he stopped espousing King's peaceful movement and began preaching violence as whites saw it. In essence, he felt peace wasn't enough that whites were being violent in, in the extreme and getting away with it. So people needed to meet fist to fist clubs with clubs and hand and handled with handled with axe handle and create a feel for fearful voice i i don't see that because eventually malcolm x went to peace went on more to the peaceful side so what are your thoughts i wish we had more time <laughs> uh malcolm x came to atlanta to clark college on a dormitory and we debated, this is 1960, we debated him all night long. I mean, literally, we were up all night long debating with Malcolm X. And that's when I really got a chance to see the man looking to his soul, so to speak. Malcolm, whites were afraid of him because they were afraid of what he could do to lead Black folk. Um, he wasn't a mean guy, but I mean, he was smart. He was intelligent. He was not, he was well-read and on top of every issue. And they just didn't like that. Uh, and of course, um, there was a little spat with him and King, but they, they worked that out. They worked that out, you know. But the interesting thing about that visit that night, we had a meeting over at Atlanta University. This was before Clark and, and Atlanta merged. That same night, and I was over there at that meeting with the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. One of my frat brothers came over, so you better come over to the dormitory. Malcolm X is over here. I went over there. Some little white ladies followed me over there. I said, well, come on in. They said, no, no, we don't want to go in, but we want to see him. So here are these little white ladies standing up, peeping in the window to get a, to see Malcolm X live, okay, <laughs> on Clark College campus, 1960 spring. <laughs> but no, Malcolm was just, Malcolm was brilliant in my book. He was brilliant. Um, but he spoke a line that white folk feared. They feared that his strength, his, his leadership, just like Dr. King, you know, both of them got assassinated, different reasons, uh, for, but uh, different colors, I guess you might say. But that was the problem that white America had with Malcolm. Then at the end, he went full circle. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually right. brings us to the top of the hour. Thank you so much for sharing your, so generously sharing your time, your thoughts, your, your memories, and your, your experience. Um, it's been an awesome hour. And I will work on Jim Clive and Vernon Jordan. I thank you so much. And um, I need you to save my number like I'm one of your grandchildren from this point on. I'll lock it in my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Just save it because I'm 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 so in awe with you. And um yeah, I'm just it's it's not it's not often you can come across someone who can give you stories. I mean, you just dropped like seven names 
in this whole in this during this hour of people that were that were friends of yours and you you grew up with and you worked with and you you know all of those things and I think I'm even more honored to know that one of them friends were my was my uncle so it's yes. just like it's it's amazing to me that, I mean, I, I'm going to sit down and have a talk with my uncle after all this is over because just, you know, <laughs> spiritually thinking I'm, I, he was a great man. And you just you just um, yes, yes, put on top yes. of that, that icing for cool. him. So it has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you as well, everyone, for joining us at home. Um, thank you for all the love and comments that you're, you're sending all of us, including including Dr. Feldman. And just a reminder that next Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it is the Black Archives of Mid-America with Carmeletta Williams. So we're gonna find out about this really, really special African-American record repository in Middle America. Yes. So until then, we will see you next week at four o'clock. Have a brilliant Sunday. Yes, I'm Donya, you guys. Have a good Sunday. Thank Dr. you. Mother, I will 